I, I actually had Anna Karenina spoiled for me by Jennifer Lopez, of all people. <laughs> Welcome, listeners. This is Dear Reader, a podcast about two old friends and reading. My name is Emily, and my name is Emily, and no, <laughs> and I am Michael. I we are we are the two old friends. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just laughing at how awkward. I didn't want to step on your toes, yeah. so instead I like held back far too long. Yeah, I wasn't sure like how to throw to you. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, that works. <laughs> so this is a uh, Good Friday. So happy it Good is. Friday. Eating fish. Uh, I, th- thus far, I've eaten eggs, protein shake, oatmeal, and I ate a three-day-old bagel. So yeah. I often wind up de facto vegetarian on Good Friday because mm-hmm. we often have pizza on Friday. Mm. And we generally don't have meat on the pizza. So yeah. I mean, out. I've been trying to eat less meat, which with the sort of bodybuilding nutritional requirements is a bit of a challenge. Mm-hmm. But like, it's, um, it's something I think about in terms of responsibility, in terms of ecology and things like that. I don't, I don't have like a ethical quarrel with eating meat, although factory farming is something that's pretty terrible. I'm trying to eat more actually so that's a little complicated because you know ecologically and so forth but i eat as much as two normal people (laughs) (laughs) yeah well i'll I'll just eat your meat um yeah i know when i'm nursing i find i need i need meat and i've tried you know iron pills and Mm -hmm. green leafy vegetables and all these things but my body just doesn't seem to absorb the same way yeah i mean i i occasionally just need a chunk of red meat medium rare on the rarer side i want a little puddle of blood in the plate it's like just i need that and i I, other i I understand some people don't but like i really believe different people have different nutritional needs whether it's like people from different parts of the world or just different body chemistries oh Um, yeah like so in my professional life as a personal trainer i always say that there there are no one size fit all solutions when it comes to nutrition yeah. like everyone's body will process things different people have different requirements what works for one person may not work for another person etc it just occurred to me we didn't say to the listeners what our podcast is oh yes yeah, so now it's a nutritional podcast <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah this is a podcast that as the name suggests is about reading and literature and uh once a month we get together and we sort of ask each other what the most interesting thing we've read is uh, after we have a little bit of catching up, which I suppose, are we caught up? Is there anything interesting that's happened in your life in the last month? All my days are the same. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, there's less snow now. Yes, we are indeed rotating towards the sun. I just came back from Washington, D.C. I took my brother and my father there. It was my father's nice. 76th birthday. They'd never been before. Got you a good son. I go down pretty often. Like one of my best friends lives down there. Yeah, I was in Washington once. Oh, yeah. How'd you find it? Loved it. We were only there like two or three days. but It's a really nice city. And it was. It happened to be a cherry blossom season mm-hmm. when we went. Like we were in the States for a wedding. 
And we were taking the train from Connecticut to Virginia. And we're like, why not stop in Washington? <laughs> yeah, no, gorgeous city. I'd like to visit it again someday if it survives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a nervous, awkward laugh. Because... Yeah, not going anytime soon. <laughs> uh, although, you know what? I can remember for a while after the election in 2016, I wondered if I should not go to the U.S. Because even though I'm like, I'm a, I'm a white masculine presenting guy and huge and with a very anglo-saxony sort of name like i i can basically move safely and freely through pretty much anywhere in north america that i want to but like that's a crap load of privilege and i'm like maybe i shouldn't maybe i should boycott yeah then it occurred to me like 85 percent of dc voted for hillary clinton yeah. <laughs> donald trump is slightly more popular than polio down there so it's like if i go to washington dc and i buy like a, a book about left-wing politics at an independent bookstore i'm not helping <laughs> the republican party when i do that <laughs> yeah it's, it's complicated because beyond like the political side there's a rise in violence in the states mm -hmm. there's mm -hmm. a rise in preventable diseases so like to pull the as a parent card <laughs> Yeah, I'm well, a concerned. <laughs> as a parent, uh, we just had a confirmed case of measles here in the York region. So, oh shit, well, I'm not visiting you anytime soon either. <laughs> <laughs> well, not till he's had his shots. Yeah, no, babies, and this is something a lot of people don't know: babies don't get the measles vaccine until they're one. Mm -hmm. And measles being so highly transmittable, if my kids on a my vaccinated kid is on a playground. With an unvaccinated one, he can bring measles home to the baby. Yep. So, please vaccinate your children if you possibly can. Like, absolutely. I mean, we could, we could go on a 10-minute rant about that, but maybe we should get to our Yeah, books. we're way off today. <laughs> so, Michael, what did you read? This month, I read a book by, I might say his name incorrectly, Kazuo Ishiguro. Um the Nobel Prize winner, um, born in Japan, moved to the UK when he was five, famous for Never Let Me Go and uh, The Remains of the Day, amongst other things. The story of how I came to read this book is a little bit interesting. Uh, which one did you read? Oh, oh, yes. An Artist of the Floating World. This is a bad problem I have, isn't it? <laughs> You're not going to tell me what the book is. Yeah. Okay, that this. is one I haven't read. This is one of my favorite authors, so I'm pretty excited. Mm -hmm. But I haven't read this one. I read The Remains of the Day when I was living in Ireland in 2005, and I liked it well enough. Uh, and it's interesting because I've heard much less about this one. It's his second novel, so it's an early work. And maybe it's because I'm a more perceptive and better reader now than I was at age 23. Um, but I was really impressed with this one in a way that Whereas The Remains of the Day seemed fine to me, I liked it well enough, but maybe the complexity and nuance passed me by because I was younger and less experienced in terms of my reading. That's possible, but I also find Remains of the Day is a little more, how do I put this, like standard British novel than some mm. of his other stuff? Yes. Well, I mean, this is <laughs> almost nothing happens in this novel, but I'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> It's still really good. That's not a criticism. Although if someone's looking for escapism and plot and action, um, this is not the book for you. So listeners who have heard every episode of this podcast might remember in the very first episode, I told a story about a guy at my gym, a power lifter who uh, is a really friendly, smiley guy and big, strong guy. And he 
knows that I had come close to finishing a PhD in literature. And he asked me one day for a recommendation. And I recommended him Mrs. Dalloway, and it blew him away. <laughs> the fun part of the story is that he absolutely uh, likes difficult, challenging, interesting literature. He is an engineer, I believe, some sort of practical STEM sort of thing. And he, he says to me, because we chat occasionally when we see each other in the gym, that he was deprived of a liberal arts education, and he's trying to do it for, on his own now, <laughs> which... It's great. Uh, he, he reads for the same reason he lifts weights to improve his mind and his body. I love that. I mean, so much academia is so binary. It's like STEM versus humanities, and you really don't need to be that way. No. So uh, he stopped me as I was walking by uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he asked me if I had read An Artist of the Floating World by Ishiguro. And I was like, I'm familiar with the author, and I've read a couple of his others, but I don't think I've ever even heard of it one. And he said, I think you would really like it. And I said, this is, you know, the return serve. I served you, Mrs. Dalloway. You're now returning the serve with this. Okay, let's go for it. So I, I went and I sought it out and I bought it and I read it. So this is my a recommendation from my, my gym friend, <laughs> uh, who, who, for the purposes of the podcast, I'm going to refer to henceforth as Mrs. Dalloway. Very good. <laughs> so Mrs. Dalloway gave me this recommendation. <laughs> it is a very subtle first person limited account from an uh, artist living in Japan in the immediate aftermath of World War II. So it's broken into four sections, although the final section is only like three pages long. Uh, over the fall of 1948, the spring of 1949, the fall of 1949, and the spring of 1950. And it's a real slow boil. It reveals who this person is and what their past is very gradually and often in very roundabout ways. The narrator is a perfect example of the unreliable narrator. He contradicts himself. He makes statements about himself, which if you think for a moment about his actions and other things he's said, are not true. <laughs> so you're constantly sort of second-guessing what he's saying. So... He's an artist, as the name might suggest. He was a painter. He is speaking as an old man in retirement. Um, his son and his wife were killed in the war, but he has two surviving daughters, one who's married, the other who is 26 and is getting a little bit old to be single, was supposed to have been married in the previous year, but it fell through for mysterious reasons at the last minute. The people around him are trying to communicate without saying that it's probably because of the father's, the narrator's actions and positions during the war. Because of the culture, no one can really sort of say anything directly. <laughs> Everything is sort of uh, in terms of innuendo and suggestion and um, subtle action, which is meant to be understood by the people around you to convey something more meaningful than what it might seem on the surface. So <laughs> basically, this guy was a very talented uh, um, painter. This guy was a very talented painter. And he became enamored of what, to my 2019 eyes, looks very much like alt-right nationalist populism, which is on the rise now in the 1930s. And his work deviates from his teachers, which is all about trying to capture 
the ephemeral pleasure and beauty of the nocturnal world of the nooks and crannies of society and that sort of Oscar Wildean sense that all art is useless. <laughs> and he decides he wants to make socially useful art, which will push Japan uh, away from decadence and away from Western influence and towards its place of claiming its rightful place on the world stage as a power and, um, you know, expanding westward into Manchuria and all of these things, convincing young men to lay down their lives for the glory of the empire things like that. And he makes these jingoistic, nationalistic, propagandistic artworks, and he gets a position in the imperial government. And then when the war is over, uh, he there's a sense of how responsible he is for the disaster that has befallen Japan. People around him are basically like, well, that was terrible. Like, we really, really went down the wrong path as a nation there in the 30s and early 40s. And we paid a terrible price for it. And now we have to pick up the pieces and start rebuilding uh, with the help of the Americans and acknowledge what a terrible mistake all of that was, which means he has to basically acknowledge that his life's work has been a terrible mistake. <laughs> he finds this very difficult, as, as one might. And the, the novel asks a lot of questions about what art is for, how art might be dangerous, the relationship of art and politics. More generally, it also is asking questions like, how culpable are we for going along with the current of our times when the current of our times is going into dangerous waters? And even if you yourself don't pull the trigger, if you agitate for a political direction which gets people killed, are you culpable for that? Yeah, especially the first time around. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I can understand how in the 30s some people may have found fascism attractive. Mm -hmm. Not so much now. So hopefully we're wiser as a people. I don't know that we are. Um, <laughs> or, I mean... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I hope so, but... The last, you know, the last few years, it really, the parallels with the 30s are really hard not to draw. And you can feel us sort of circling that same terrible, like, whirlpool, dragging us downwards. That's what's so crazy to me is that this has all happened before. Like, mm -hmm. it's not like the 30s where we don't know how this story ends. Yeah. It, and if anything, it's the only major difference is this time that people driving the car can't drive. <laughs> yes, their incompetence might be the only thing that saves us. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, if, if it sounds like we're unusually dark, the, Mueller, the Mueller report came out today. Yes. Or yesterday. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So basically, that's that's something that the narrator and some of his compatriots during the war tell themselves after the fact like well we thought like we acted in good faith we thought we were doing something that was good and right and helpful for the country and we were young men of courage and conviction and we honestly believed we were doing the right thing and turns out we weren't but we can't be blamed for it because we thought we were <laughs> it's kind of similar thematically to the remains of the day I don't because, remember almost anything about the remains of the day other than the fact that it's about a butler. <laughs> well, the butler's lord, I guess, like, you know, that he was so devoted to was also a fascist in England. Mm. And similar sort of thing where um, 
you know, all we know about the Lord is that he's not a Lord anymore or, you know, not rich and powerful anymore. And the, but the butler is still devoted to him. But as we see in Remains of the Day, kind of, again, slowly and bit by bit, is that the Lord's disgrace is a result of his fascism during the Second World War. Mm-hmm. He was one of the was one of many upper class Brits who thought Hitler had the right idea. Ishiguro, you know, he grew up in England. Right. Uh, he was five when they moved there. What I didn't know until I was actually looking things up after I'd finished reading this is that um, he didn't return to Japan until he was like thirty, and uh, he wrote this book, which is set entirely in Japan, and displays seemingly a very intimate knowledge of the neighborhoods that it's set in. He wrote it without ever having been in Japan. So it's depicting like a Japan of the mind, like Mm -hmm. of the stories that his parents might have told him, the culture he might have consumed. But like he'd never been there, which I find fascinating. Yeah, it's so interesting when we talk about culture and writing because he grew up entirely in England. Now, mm-hmm. but in many ways, he's also a Japanese writer. Like, he's both a Japanese and a British writer. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think he even spoke Japanese till he was older, although I could be mistaken. So it's it's interesting. Like, do we call him a British writer? Do we call him a Japanese writer? Does it matter? I think it kind of does, but it's hard to say in what way. Yeah. I mean, he could be both. Yeah. I fear that my description of the novel might have made it seem more polemical and direct in its political speech than it is. Mm-hmm. He's got a very dreamy sort of style, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Very, very poised, mm-hmm. very still, very meticulous, yet also very easy to read. It's not a difficult, it's not challenging prose, but there's a certain detachment well, I'm interested in knowing. You said Ishiguro is one of your favorite writers. Yes. Why is that? I guess because of the books I've read, I've really... There's only one I didn't like. And one of the first ones I read was The Buried Giant. I don't know if mm. it was the first. It might have been. And that was just so mesmerizing. The Buried Giant, it takes place in Arthurian Britain, but real Arthurian, like pre-Roman Britain, like they're cave dwellers and it's about um it's not about the you know whatever kings or more likely warlords were actually on the go it's about the peasants Mm -hmm. and they're only dimly aware of arthur although they kind of are and they're all losing their memories Mm. they live in this complex of caves and remember very little but then there is a quest I'm i'm making this sound so confused but it is. It's kind of. It's kind of dreamlike. Mm. Like it. It's like recalling a dream. I think. Yeah. And it was just so interesting because I'd never seen that portrayal, like, of, of cave people in England. Although obviously we know that to be true. An artist of the floating world is definitely in a realist mode, psychological, internal. It's doing that Virginia Woolfian sort of thing where you get the free and direct discourse. Um, oftentimes when he's recounting uh, something from his past, he will stop and say, or at least that's how I remember it. It's entirely possible that I might be remembering it wrong because so many years have gone by <laughs> or things like that. 
So his younger daughter is having difficulty getting married. She had a love match in the year previous before the book opens. And it seemed like it was all sailing very smoothly. But of course, the families, as is the custom, hire a private detective to investigate each other. <laughs> it's probably not a bad and, idea. <laughs> well, because marriage is so much more about family alliances in this in this milieu. And uh, there is the possibility for a love match, but the families still have to approve it. And the groom... The would-be groom backs out at the very last minute with very unsatisfactory explanations. And it's sort of thought that it's because of the father's activities during the war, which are now very much at odds with the path that Japan is forging into the 1950s. The elder daughter, who is already married to a man who served in the Japanese military in the 40s and was captured and tortured, and now is very, very bitter towards the older generation, uh, including his father-in-law, who led them down that path and often has great trouble concealing his anger and resentment towards the men who made the decisions that ended up with so many of his friends being killed and him being tortured and things like that. And the narrator of the book is really clueless as to why the younger people would be so resentful and angry. <laughs> which is seems obvious to the reader why, but he can't seem to grasp it. I'm telling this poorly. The younger daughter's love match falls through, and a year later, they're having more of a traditional arranged sort of marriage where they're meeting for the first time, and the person, the, the professional go-between they've hired uh, to bring them together is there, and the would-be bride is there, the would-be groom is there, the families are there, and they're all having a big dinner together to see if they get along. And it's going very, very poorly. Um, the daughter is unable to come out of her shell. She's way too nervous. There is a, um, a son who is not the would-be groom, but the would-be groom's younger brother, who seems to be aware of who the narrator is and what his role was in the war, and is doing a very bad job at sort of hiding his resentment and anger. And the father makes this unexpected speech about how he regrets his actions, and he feels like he did the best that he could, and he did what he thought was right at the time, but surely he was mistaken, and basically owns up, fesses up. And it seems like it rescues the evening. Like, everyone relaxes after that, everyone gets along very well, the marriage goes ahead. And he did this because his elder daughter, the one who's married to the veteran, uh, basically had prodded him along that path through very subtle means and suggestions. And then a year later, when he has a moment alone with the elder daughter, and he says, you know, it was because of your advice that I did that, and that's what saved the proceedings, and that's why your younger sister is married now. She's like, I didn't do that. I have no recollection of that. I never gave you that advice. <laughs> and it's like, because of the, because the narrator is so unreliable, but also because this culture that in the novel is so indirect and is always operating on hints and suggestions that you have to guess about, it's entirely possible that it was all a misunderstanding and she never really did intend that. Sure, maybe he uh, kind of 
wanted to do it so he imagined the prodding yeah like after after four or five years of thinking about it he sort of had realized that he had a degree of culpability in this sort of national disaster yeah. and that he wanted to he wanted to confess and be absolved and that may have happened i'll just read a little passage here so he's talking to his grandson here about a uh, composer of patriotic nationalistic songs that were very popular in the war years um, who had committed suicide. But was he a bad man? No, he wasn't a bad man. He was just someone who worked very hard doing what he thought was for the best. But you see, Ichiro, when the war ended, things were very different. The songs Mr. Naguchi composed had become very famous, not just in this city, but all over Japan. They were sung on the radio and in bars, and the likes of your Uncle Kenji sang them when they were marching or before a battle. And after the war, Mr. Naguchi thought his songs had been, well, a sort of mistake. He thought of all the people who had been killed, all the little boys your age, Ichiro, who no longer had parents. He thought of all these things, and he thought perhaps his songs were a mistake." And he felt he should apologize to everyone who was left, to little boys who no longer had parents, and to parents who had lost little boys like you. To all these people, he wanted to say sorry. I think that's why he killed himself. Mr. Naguchi wasn't a bad man at all, Ichiro. He was brave to admit the mistake he had made. He was very brave and honorable. Ichiro was watching me with a thoughtful expression. I gave a laugh and said, What's the matter, Ichiro? My grandson seemed about to speak, but then turned again to look at his face reflected in the glass. Yeah, it certainly speaks to the nobility of admitting your mistake. I don't know. This whole book has made me think a lot about the discourse. <laughs> <laughs> the moment that we're in right now, it suddenly seems quite an important book in that we have people like the composer who killed himself in that passage who are pushing us in a direction which will get people killed if they are successful. <laughs> and it, a big part of it is this totally on like inability to relent and apologize. Mm -hmm. I mean, we see this all the time, like even in a dumb way, like with, with men who've sexually harassed or behaved inappropriately, some of them mm -hmm. like of the lesser incidents, some of them honestly didn't believe they were hurting anybody, but if they could just say, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. I was wrong. I'll try to do better. But so often they don't. Yeah. So often it's like, oh, I wasn't wrong. That was fine. And, you know. Or I'm thinking about all the people who work in the Trump administration who eventually either he throws them under the bus or they eventually are fed up and they leave. But who, when they were working there, did their honest best to helped bring about his agenda and went on TV and lied to the nation about what was going on. And then they quit or are fired. And then they go on these redemption tours and it's all okay. <laughs> like <laughs> they can absolutely hold their head up and go into restaurants and not be yelled at and can expect to go on speaking tours and sell books and they will be fine. They have a career and it is fine. And at no point it's like, well, you put children in cages and some of them died. Like, yeah, there, there's, there can't be healing and growth until until there's understanding. Culpability. Yeah, culpability. Yeah. And like deep mm -hmm. in the heart. Don't not just, you know, lip service and apologies have to realize. I mean, we've all realized we've made a mistake. I assume it happens. You know, I've definitely said some things, um, you know, I've held political opinions that I no longer think are defensible. 
Yeah. Then I'll admit that. <laughs> I'm just a little person. <laughs> well, exactly. To admit that, you know, we are all of us are very small and limited and that we can we can be led down bad paths or we can think things that are upon reflection not good and might have been harmful. And like no one is born into perfection. <laughs> like like all of us have to like learn and grow as as we journey along through our lives. So I guess this book is kind of about what do you do when an entire group of people has this sort of terrible guilt? Do you do you commit suicide? <laughs> like the like this like the composer? Uh I mean Ideally not. No. <laughs> Ideally not, <laughs> like, but like at the same time, there's uh, there are other people in this book who just went on and sort of resumed having their posts in government and being on the boards of corporations with absolutely no sense of wrongdoing, no sense that they would be held to account for the things that they did during the war. There is this great sort of question, like all of these people died and you are just going on living your normal life. Yeah. I don't know how many listeners are aware of the Muskrat Falls inquiry or how closely you've been following it. Um, if anyone doesn't know, Muskrat Falls is a multi-billion dollar mistake the Newfoundland Labrador government made. And there's an ongoing public inquiry into how that happened. And every day it's worse than we thought. It's greater incompetence, greater negligence, not much actual malicious intent, but just, you know, mm. people not reading reports or signing off on that when they shouldn't have. But there's no consequences. <laughs> there never yeah. will be. Negligence. Nothing. Negligence that has had a really high exactly. cost. But they didn't actually commit a crime. So, mm. it's you know, what's the point of this? They're all, like you said, pursuing political careers, sitting on boards, mm -hmm. going on with it. Leaving this job with an insane pension and sort of bonuses and going to another one. like And not dealing at all with the fact that they were responsible for a mistake that could tank our home. So I guess that's what I have. Um, I'm glad I read this. Um, it wasn't a difficult thing for me to get through. Um, it is. It starts very slow. I mean... Massive spoiler warnings. Everything I talk about is revealed very gradually over about 200 pages. So like it starts off seeming like it might be a very small domestic drama. And then it's like, oh, no, this is this is unfolding with flashbacks to the 20s and the 30s and the 40s in Japan, which were very volatile decades. <laughs> like, Yeah, well, I mean, I've often thought that if something is truly good, it, you can't spoil it. You know, like I actually had Anna Karenina spoiled for me by Jennifer Lopez, of all people. <laughs> <laughs> she had. She, I think I'm going to put that at the start of the episode. <laughs> she had a joke about, about I'll just say it, about Anna Karenina killing herself at the end because she, mm -hmm. she was on Will and Grace and she decided she was going to make a movie of it. But instead of killing herself, Anna Karenina would become a pop star in Mm -hmm. so i was like oh, i haven't read it but then i read it it was like you know still good <laughs> mm -hmm. i mean there was lots of different sources of pleasure that 
you can get from a book. And there are certainly some genres where the suspense of the plot sure. and finding out what happens is the main source. Like if it's like a murder mystery, you don't want to be told who, do, who, yeah. who did it, you know? But like if it's um if it's like a rich literary novel where the pleasure is sort of immersing yourself in the world of the text and sort of enjoying the, st- the writer's style and all sorts of things, I generally don't mind being spoiled. Um, there are a couple of things that I'm glad I didn't have spoiled for me. Uh, when I finally saw the new Star Wars films, there were several things that happened in The Last Jedi that my husband, Chris, was very keen that I not find out about <laughs> and because those no those novels because those books jesus because those movies <laughs> are not all that old i'm not gonna say what they yeah. are because there might be some people like me who like absolutely will have their jaw drop when x or y mm. happens and i am glad that i didn't know that that was gonna happen there was that was good but ordinarily i don't mind spoilers Hello, dear reader. This is Emily coming back in time uh, to let you know that I made a mistake in the pronunciation of Isabel Allende's name. I unfortunately called her sort of anglicized Allende. It is Allende. So my apologies to Isabel Allende for that and uh, Spanish-speaking people to whom that must sound very jarring. And uh, I'd just like to point out that maybe if we talked more about uh, Spanish female authors, I might not have made this mistake. So. <laughs> so what have you read this month? Well, Michael, I have not successfully read anything. Well, okay. I read a parenting book, uh, How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen, that was very badly written, but moderately helpful. And I read half of House of the Spirits by Isabella Lind, which is fabulous so far. Ah, so I don't know anything about that book. Well, Isabella Lind is believed to be the most widely read Spanish language author. Her standing as an author is occasionally controversial. Uh, Notably, Roberto Bolano and Harold Bloom were very dismissive of her. But others, you know, she's also won the National Book Award. She's a well-recognized Chilean writer. Um, Pablo Neruda was the one who suggested to her that she write novels. So that's a pretty good commendation. Well, I'll start by saying why I failed. (laughs) Why I failed to read this book, even though I love it. It was just basically um, my older kid is still not letting me read in his presence unless it's don't let the pigeon drive the bus. Oh, no. Um, my, my baby's bassinet was recalled after 30 babies died in it. Oh, Jesus. I know. And we don't have a crib for him yet. We ordered a bed for my son, who's in the crib, and it's not here because the wind was such the boat couldn't get in. (laughs) So listeners who are not familiar with Newfoundland (laughs) might not know that there is no way to drive there. Everything that's on that island came off a boat or a plane, and it's surrounded by very, very powerful rough seas. So sometimes... (laughs) Sometimes beds don't come from Ikea. (laughs) 
sometimes the grocery shelves are quite bare because the food can't come. Yeah. There was one I there was one community a couple of years ago that ran out of toilet paper, then it ran out of paper towels, and then the libraries closed. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um so I don't have anywhere safe for my baby to sleep. So I hold him while he sleeps. And this wow. book is too heavy to hold in one hand. <laughs> well, I'm very sorry for what sounds like quite a trial. It's a trial. <laughs> so I can read while he's having tummy time, mm-hmm. which is not a bunch of time. <laughs> no. Sometimes I do other things, like, you know, shower. Anyway. Well, this would be a great, great time to have an audiobook I yeah, guess. it should have been and i <laughs> thought about reading something smaller i downloaded an ebook but i love this book so much <laughs> okay well you're halfway through it so okay. tell me okay. what you love about it so far well, okay i'll talk a little bit about elizabeth isabella Lund. yes please she was born in peru her father was the chilean ambassador he was cousin of the chilean president and uh, he disappeared when she was three. Uh, I need to, I don't know much about that, but he disappeared. And uh, she lived in Chile and Spain. Um, after a coup, she had to flee to Venezuela. And her second husband is American, and she has become an American citizen. She's written about 20 books. Uh, The House of the Spirit is her first. Um, But she got her start as a journalist for feminist uh, papers in the 50s and 60s in Chile. Um, And she also, this is amazing to me, she had a job translating romance novels from English to Spanish. But she got fired because she kept changing them. To make the heroines more intelligent and ambitious. <laughs> That's the kind of sabotage I can get behind. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so kind of love her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You said uh, your book was recommended by Mrs. Dalloway. This was actually <laughs> recommended to me by a fictional character, mm-hmm. uh, Jane the Virgin, which is the best show on TV. I'm sorry. If you care at all about narrative, character, Jane the Virgin is the show, and this is her favorite book. So I know Jane's not real, but I trust her writers so implicitly. Yeah. That it's like, okay. The writer's room recommended this to you via her a fictional exactly. character. Actually, Isabella Lind actually appeared in an episode in sort of a fairy godmother sort of Ooh. situation. And Jane the Virgin, like Isabella Lind uses a lot of magical realism, which I enjoy. And I like the way this is handled because she's not a dreamy writer. She writes about women. She writes about domestic situations, usually in, you know, South America of the 30s, 40s, 50s. And it's sort of like slid in there. The magic, like it's to a point it almost doesn't seem magical. You know, this is a family, a political family, and they're atheists, but then the little girl can read the future, and her older sister looks like a mermaid, might be part mermaid. But it is it is a family drama. It's multi generational. Mm-hmm. 
it it moves back and forth. So in that way, it's a little bit Mark, like Marquez, who's an author she gets compared to a lot. I just love her books. It's a lot of... Now, this is only the second one I read. The first one I read, like this is the first book she read, she wrote. First one I read was... Inez of My Soul, which was an, a fictionalized account of the female conquistador. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even know that was a thing. <laughs> Neither did I. But apparently there was one conquistador who was the wife or consort of a more famous one who who went and subjugated Peru. So she, it, it was about her. And that's the other thing that's really interesting is that she doesn't shy away from giving the viewpoint of some really terrible things. Mm-hmm. Um, like Inez of my soul, our hero is Inez, you know, and she's she's cool and she's badass, but she's also really big into genocide. Yeah. So- <laughs> well, that's interesting. Both of her, well, this is not the book you're talking about right now, but my book and your book have people who were complicit in war crimes. Yeah, except mine's not sorry. Um, and in... House of the Spirits, the viewpoint moves around a couple times. But for part of the time, we're hearing about the rape of peasant girls on haciendas from the perspective of the landowner. Hmm. And again, she's not defending this. It's just sort of matter-of-factly in the culture he's from. This is totally acceptable. There's a really funny, darkly funny line where he's annoyed at all the women who are like, oh, I had your child. He's like, it seems like I just had to roll with her once and she's pregnant. Like, it, it must be somebody else's baby. Because <laughs> he, he doesn't acknowledge any of his bastards. This is something I've been thinking about recently. And that is art that depicts unpleasant things. Mm-hmm. And how it feels like there's a certain, I don't want to call it puritanism, but there is sort of a, a sense in culture, at least as I perceive it lately, that you're you're not supposed to like art that depicts unpleasant and politically bad things, mm-hmm. like like rape, sexual violence, um, genocide, um, racism, things like that, which is weird. Like I think about, say, Ralph Allison's Invisible Man, which is one of the most powerful and amazing novels I've ever read, and it depicts some really awful racial violence. And like, if I say, oh, I really love that book. I really enjoyed it. Like, I'm not saying I enjoyed the racial violence. Yeah. It was terrible, but I feel like I'm a richer person for having experienced it. Well, exactly. Like, we need to acknowledge that this exists in the world mm-hmm. and deal with it. There's, in, in terms of our, our rapist Patron, there's there's this great scene where he's... He's trying to sleep with his wife and she doesn't want to sleep with him. So he says he's going to the brothel and she shoots back. Well, at least the peasant girls are safe tonight. (laughs) And it's kind of like it, it, you know, it condemns his behavior within the context of the novel. Like the reader knows he's doing the wrong thing, even if he doesn't. Yeah. And I feel like it's too much to construct a fictional world where all the bad people are punished and all the good people are rewarded because that's not how the world is. Yeah. Like sometimes people do terrible things and are not really punished in any meaningful way for it. Um, and the, the sort of the fiction can bear witness to the terribleness and you as the reader observing it can 
feel how terrible it is and get frustrated at the fact that there is no culpability. But like, that's how it be. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's not a happy man either. Mm. Like, he's not explicitly punished for his, his bad deeds, but, you know, he loses the love of his wife. She takes the kids away. His He gets old and bitter and angrier and angrier. Yeah. Um, and, and but the main the main character is his wife, Clara, who mm. begins as a little girl who can, you know, move the salt shaker with her mind. And she grows into a dreamy, out of touch woman who you know talks to spirits and has seances but is occasionally forced to deal with the reality in some cases a brutal reality of her life and it's i don't know what's going to happen to her <laughs> that's true because you're only halfway through so maybe you... i'll hate it next time. i don't think so i really i really enjoy this book Yeah, a week or two ago, I was thinking, like, is there any way I can get some time to finish this? But then I was like, we're talking about the process of reading. And this is part of that. Like, I'm, Mm -hmm. it's a new experience in my life to desperately want to read a book and not be able to, like, physically. (laughs) Yeah, you have material conditions of your living situation right now preventing you. I need that boat. And now it's Good Friday, so... The Judeo-Christian uh, underpinning of our um, society. <laughs> yes. It's like, deliveries for atheists, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm thinking about the ways that these books seem like they might talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Because while there's a, you know, the magical realism um, of yours versus the psychological realism, the very down-to-earth realism of mine, they're quite different. But they both seem to be having some sort of discussion about how engaged with politics you can be, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> Something like that. So... Isabella Lenz's father was disappeared when she was three? Yeah. <laughs> I say was disappeared as opposed to disappeared. I think you said disappeared. Did he just... Was it a political... Yeah, I'm not clear. <laughs> but I know her life was also affected by military coups, so mm-hmm. I think maybe was disappeared. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I just know that in Chile, that is, in a certain eras, a lot of people, like the dictators, made them disappear. Yeah. So yeah. I'm not I'm not clear, but uh, she has had a very charged life herself. Yeah, for sure. Very high. You know, she's obviously of a very important family. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe she was very rich growing up, but not without some troubles. And she's been <laughs> she started writing novels on the advice of Neruda. Yeah, she was interviewing him. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and he real t- really took to her and apparently read some of her uh, satirical feminist essays, which kind of makes me really like Neruda, too. <laughs> yeah. Have you read any of those essays? No, I haven't. I wonder if they've been translated. I don't know. I mean, I know her books have been translated. Like I said, she's hugely popular. And that seems to be what Bolano took like I don't want to say talk shit about Roberto Bolano either but he seemed to say that almost like because she's popular her books aren't as good mm. like you know you run into people that way it's like oh that pop star shit you know Ugh. it's 
to me, that's such an immature impulse. And it's so weird to see grown men like buy into it. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's one of those things when she's criticized. And I, I don't know if you this happens to you, but I frequently um, second guess my own taste mm. um, because I, I don't know. But I, you know, I'll, I'll like something, somebody would be like, oh, it's shit. And I'm like, maybe I can't tell the difference. <laughs> um, but- that's, <laughs> go ahead. I was going to say that's, that's interesting because I honestly don't. I, really? I, I, I rarely, if someone, if someone says something I like is shit, I just be like, mm, they must like different things. I've got a long history of this. Do you think that's a gender thing? I think it is because mm. I once got so fed up with, boys asking me what music I liked and then not liking my answers that I stopped listening to everything but oh the Beatles God. for like three years. So yeah, I, I I don't know if it's my own securities or like an internalized misogyny, but if someone like respected says, oh, she's like Harold Bloom or Roberta Bolano is like, oh, she's shit. I'm like, maybe I'm not really judging this properly, but I do love her. And mm-hmm. a lot of people do. There is something that happens to some people where something gets really popular and then it's, they think it's cool to crap on it. And mm-hmm. she's a woman in, you know, a very boys club like literature in general but also you know latin american literature it's very male dominated i always remember this little passage in margaret atwood's negotiating with the dead where she describes an encounter with a really snooty person in uh, paris who sneers at her like aren't you the one who writes the best sellers and the only response she could think of was not on purpose (laughs) (laughs) exactly it's that sort of thing (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's it's a cheap and easy way to sort of imply that, oh, well, I have more refined tastes. I, mm-hmm. I'm more intelligent and discerning than the average people who, who like this trash. But I see its flaws, which they're blind to. And it's like, oh, yeah, I mean, and fine. And <laughs> is definitely less impenetrable than Bolano or Marquez. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's very popular with women as well because she writes about women. Yeah. Um, usually from their perspectives, not always, but in about the brutal realities and magic of their lives. Yeah. So it, it's hard to say if the criticism leveled against her is all about that. Um, a lot of times her books are marketed almost like romance novels, like in the 80s and 90s, like the covers had like those Judith Krantz style covers, mm-hmm. you know. This happens to Elena Ferrante, too, who's another one of my favorite authors. Her her books are all, like, pink and have pictures of wedding dresses on them. I was looking at an Elena Ferrante book in a bookstore recently, yeah. and it had, like, a Maeve Vinci cover. Exactly. And that's the only cover you can get in the English translation. And I was like, I know my father would love this book, but I also know I cannot give him a book that looks like that. <laughs> you need to get it rebound in, like, plain leather. <laughs> I know! <laughs> well, this makes me think about when I first read 100 Years of Solitude, it had the Oprah Winfrey like book club, not even a sticker, but it was like part of the cover that you couldn't remove. And I didn't mind. I was like, well, Oprah picks some really good books. Like, it's she fine. She does. She has excellent taste. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's wide ranging. Sometimes she'll pick things that are sort of more popular and other times like things that are like 100 Years of Solitude is a damn good book. Yeah, she she picked <laughs> um, the Faulkner trilogy at one mm-hmm. point. Like, she Didn't she do books. Anna Karenina at one point? Yes, my copy. Yeah. 
And that's how yeah. I became aware of the uh, Russian translators that I like so much. Mm-hmm. And I guess this is the case for a lot of women, because I certainly was a woman who didn't read women authors for a long time. And I know other women like that because it's it's hard to pick. You know, it's hard to tell what's going to be the fluff and what's going to be the heavy stuff. Mm-hmm. Not that there's anything wrong with fluff. It's just it's hard to know what you're getting into with a woman author because of the way they're marketed mm-hmm. and the way they're critically reviewed. Yeah, I became a much better reader the more widely I read. Like, you know, I went through a phase where I read very, you know, canon. I only read books that everybody agreed were important, intelligent books because, you know, I didn't want to be embarrassed reading the wrong book mm-hmm. in a social situation or not having read the book that everyone's talking about. These these are insecurities I have mm-hmm. <laughs> or had and am growing out of. But when I started to read, it was when I probably was getting out of a slump, I started to read more chiclet. And mm-hmm. I started to realize, oh, this is actually good, some of it. I mean, not all, but some of it. Um, and it's the last few years that I became aware. It's like, oh, I should read Black authors and Asian authors and gay authors. Sometimes it's easier said than done. But like the first three books I read this year were by Asian women. Just accidentally. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's certainly possible. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, if you look at the books that we've covered on this podcast, there's a very strong female slant. Yeah. Ishiguro is just the second man out of ten. Like, yeah, I've, I haven't read a male author, and I might just to change it up. It's just the books I've been picking happen to be written by women. Yeah. So. I, I haven't been doing – I haven't been picking women on purpose. It's just those are the ones I've read. Yeah. <laughs> Well, too, I am consciously avoiding certain kinds of violence in my mm-hmm. books or anything that involves bad things happen to children. Just I'm not an emotional place to deal with that right now. So That's recently fine. postpartum. And I think I think a lot of times female authors, if they cover those topics, tend to be a little bit more sensitive about it. Yeah. That's I mean, that's a broad generalization, but. You can tell when you're reading um, the description of a birth if if the person writing it has had one or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you just uh, you're making me think now about the various sort of if if women like if men's bodies were described the way that male authors describe women's bodies. <laughs> yeah, I love those those trees, <laughs> like those threads on Twitter. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And it's funny because that sort of thing pops up even in books I like. Like, I love Charles Dickens, but he cannot write women. No. (laughs) At all. (laughs) I mean, I'm trying to think now. In another life, like when I was going into my master's program, I considered the field I wanted to specialize in as an academic to be Victorian literature. Mm -hmm. And after a little bit of time, I realized I didn't necessarily care for Victorian literature. I just liked the Brontes and George Eliot and Wilkie Collins. Like The rest could just go. (laughs) See, I like a lot of Victorian literature, but you have to like, you know... Take a grain of salt, maybe skim your eyes over certain paragraphs. So now I'm just trying to think if there are Victorian male authors who do women well. Because, like, it would be a surprise. None spring to mind. But a lot of them don't write women at all. Yeah. Like, 
take Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, women only appear on the peripheries. Like, I don't know if you saw this fun essay about the seven wives of Watson. No. Because if you put the um, the stories in order, like not the order they're written, but the seeming order in which they happen, his wife blinks in and out of existence. <laughs> sometimes he's married, sometimes he's not, sometimes he's widowed, sometimes he's remarried, and then he's back with the first one again. <laughs> it's the quantum wife. Exactly. If Watson needs... A wife for the story, there she is. Or if he needs to be a widow for the story, she's dead. <laughs> like, like Doyle is a great writer, but he just does not care about Watson's wife. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. I didn't know that. That's really funny. And a lot of a lot of writers are like that. They're they're telling their story and a woman just drifts along the side. <laughs> I guess I'm thinking about whether artists in general and writers in particular have an obligation to the political or not. Because in my book, that's very much the sort of it is it is it is concerned with, among other things, the sort of two poles of art. The art is useless versus art must be useful. Art is about beauty versus art is about politics and culture and actively engaging and trying to change politics and culture versus art is about the ephemeral and the apolitical and the elevating moments of life. Mm-hmm. And the idea that that's a binary or, or a polarity is not something that I've ever sat comfortably with me. Yeah, it's... Well, like somebody like Elizabeth Lent... Eliz- Isabel... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the fact of her writing at all is kind of political. Yeah. Because of, you know, the time she was writing. She started writing uh, as a journalist in like 1960. So a female journalist at all was political. And then what does she do? She writes about women in the 80s and 90s. And again, that's kind of political. We haven't, again, I'm only halfway through the book, but it seems like the socialists are starting to mobilize. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure where that's going to go. Might go somewhere. And that is obviously it's I mean a book becomes part of the culture when people mm-hmm. read it, especially when a lot of people read it. And our our culture is everything. Mm-hmm. It includes what's going on in politics. Like politics and culture are not diverged. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I don't think an artist right now has the responsibility to write about Trump necessarily. Yeah. But I think we could all agree on that. But if they have a point of view that could aid someone else's understanding, mm-hmm. then that's valuable. I mean that like we've said this before. This is why we read so we can obtain different point of views. Yeah. And, and gain understanding of people who are totally different from us. I think that's good. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Is there much else that you thought you'd like to bring up? Or? No, I think I'm good. Um, I might return to this topic next week. 
next time. Well, I think the next time we record, even if you have a different book to talk about, um, I, you can give us a little follow up yeah. um, about, about how how the back half of this one went. That was terrible. <laughs> it took a hard left turn. She just drove it into the ditch. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. So that's pretty much what I got. <laughs> well, thank you. Oh, thank you. I, I I hope the winds die down and you get that bed. I'm so frustrated. Oh my goodness. Uh, and I'm is so he... sore. Like I'm carrying him all the time. And a lot of times, like my older son, who's 30 pounds, sees me carrying him. So he's like, carry me, mommy, carry me, mommy. And then he says, I'm a baby, mama, mama. So, uh, oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> I so. hate maternity leave. <laughs> oh, God. No, I love my children. Yes, of course. You're still allowed to be frustrated. Yeah. So someday yep. they'll be they'll be wonderful young men, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And you can you can tell the story about your older one yelling that he's a baby at you know his wedding or something. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, just making lists. Lists yeah. of terrible stories. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Dear Reader. I have been Michael. I'm still Emily. Mm-hmm. Our identities appear to persist from episode to episode. Fascinating. Shocking. <laughs> <laughs> so if you'd like to engage with us, uh, we have a Twitter account. It is at Dear Reader FM. And you can email us at dearreader at megaphonic.fm we are indeed a part of the megaphonic podcast network uh which has a bunch of nice shows that you can check out i host another one called this is your mixtape where um i got a different person on every time and i basically ask them to tell me their life story through five songs that they've selected um but there's all kinds of things you can check out there uh yeah and it's been a great pleasure chatting with my my good friend (laughs) (laughs) thank you Yay. Yay. All right. Well, we'll see you next time. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Thank you.